0: Welcome everyone. Those of you who are at home watching, um, if you have a Bible, you could turn it to Luke chapter 18, because that's where we're going to be this morning. When I was um when I was a kid, when I was growing up, my dad and I had a pretty strained relationship. And I I thought when I was younger that it was just because I was awesome, and my dad didn't realize how awesome I was. Um, I think that's how most young people feel, um, if they don't have a great relationship. Anyway, um, as I look back, I realize that, like, there's a lot more going on than that. I wasn't quite as awesome as I thought I was, uh, and uh, but then also I realized that, um, m- like, my dad, the family that my dad came from and the background that he had and kind of even what parenting Looked like to him was uh, was so 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 like not parenting, that really it took a tremendous amount of love and dedication on my dad's part to be able to do as well as he did as a father, and and I'd say the same for my mom. Um, so uh, so even though looking back we didn't have the best relationship, I I don't think it was because. You know he didn 't try harder didn't do things that he should have done, um, but nonetheless we all we were pretty distant for a, a, a lot of growing up and it wasn't until a few years after Ellie and I were married that we were Um, living in another part of the state, and um, my dad came up to visit, which we hadn't visited with him much. He came to actually stay at our house. We were going to Ethiopia to adopt our son, and so we were gonna be gone for a while, and he said he would come and he'd stay at our house, and then he'd watch our dog for us and house-sit and stuff. So we got to spend a couple days together before we left. And I'll never forget my dad coming and just kind of, I had done a bunch of work on the house, and my dad did a bunch of work on our house growing up. He he kind of fixed everything, he was working on everything all the time. It was kind of like, it seemed weird to me growing after growing up in the house that I lived in that you would ever like not do just all the work and everything yourself. Um, and, uh, and so I did a bunch of work, and I'll never forget after like the evening of the first night that my dad was there, he was just kind of sitting down, we were talking, and, and he made this comment, sort of passing comment, that he said, you should be really proud of all the work you've done here. It's really impressive. And um, for some reason, that was like one of the greatest things that it felt that anyone had ever said to me looking back, the work wasn't that great. Um, and, uh, And I think if he had known how long it took me to do the little bit of work that he saw, he probably maybe wouldn't have been quite as impressed. But there was this overwhelming sense that I had in that moment of just how good it felt to know that my dad was proud of me, that I was doing a good job. And I don't know if you, I think we all hopefully have some memory of a point, and it doesn't even have to be with your parent. I I hope that we all have some memory of a point in our lives when just for whatever happened, the circumstances were such that we found ourselves just being able to stop and say, I'm pretty proud of, of where I am. I'm pretty proud of, of, uh, of what's happening in my life right now, of some of my accomplishments. That sets a pride and fulfillment that it's just kind of like a nice thing to have. Maybe especially if you feel like you don't have it for a lot of your life. You may have friends in your life where you're like, that's the last thing I would ever any, want anyone to say to them is uh, you should be proud because they're too proud. But this feeling of just knowing that we're doing like well is a really big deal to us as people. It's a bigger deal than we often think. In fact, for those of us who are like, oh, I don't care what people think of me. I don't care about, you know, all that stuff. I don't care. Usually, you're wrong. Usually, you do care, just not in the ways that you think. Um, Or you maybe never had anyone telling you they were proud of you, and that's the reason why you maybe even got to a place where you're like, I don't care about those things anymore. What we're looking at in Luke this morning is an example of what it looks like for a person to do well, what it looks like for God to ultimately look at someone and say, this is good, what you are doing, how you are right now, right here before me. And it's something that when Jesus tells this parable to his disciples, it completely blows their mind because it's the last thing that they would expect. We're going to read Luke chapter 18, verses... I want to say 9 through 14. This is a parable that Jesus tells his disciples, his apostles, uh, his disciples. Luke 18, 9 through 15 says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a parable about not a certain kind of person, not a certain role in the church or in society. It's not even a parable about a certain set of behaviors. This is a parable about an attitude. That's all it is. It's a parable about an attitude and how that attitude makes it possible for what Jesus says at the end here, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That statement makes no sense in the world in which we live. It makes very little sense in the way that we go about living our everyday lives. It just just doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus places a lot of emphasis on being humbled. This parable blew people's minds. It didn't make a lot of sense to the disciples at first because it took their understanding of what it meant for a person to be good and turned it completely on its head. How on earth is this really the way that it is in the kingdom of God? Now, what this parable does is it challenges something that is very hard for us to ever challenge, which is our presumptions. Our presumptions are the things that we don't question, the things that we don't have up for evaluation, the things that we aren't usually thinking about. Usually we, when we think we're open-minded, we're not as open-minded as we think because of our presumptions, the things that we assume, the things that we go, oh, that's a given, that's obvious. And that's what this parable is about. Two men, one who presumes to be righteous, the other presumes to be a sinner. One is a man with an incredible reputation, an impressive reputation, who has been very obedient according to the law. The other is a man whose life is full of mistakes, a shameful life. You, uh, the, the idea of challenging our presumptions is an important one. Uh, the, like The whole basis of scientific inquiry and knowledge is built on the idea of challenging presumptions, the idea of, uh, of questioning, of asking questions of the things that we consider to be obvious and maybe even already known and understood, and then trying to get to the bottom, to trying to get to the answer of that question and that inquiry. But it's really hard to do that. You know that you're a person who doesn't often challenge your presumptions if you're constantly frustrated and confused by everyone else. I think if you, spend a, if, you, if you generally end any difficult situation with another person going, I don't, I don't get it. They, that is, they don't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why they would be that way. I don't know why they would do that thing. I don't know why it would be like that. I don't know how anybody could ever possibly dot, dot, dot likely the reason that you come to that conclusion so often, and you might be totally comfortable coming to that conclusion, you might be like, I like it, I think that's great, I like like ending things on there all the time, is because it doesn't occur to you to maybe ask some other questions that might actually make sense of the situation you're in, the thing that you're dealing with. This is a passage about humility, and if we're willing to challenge our presumptions, hopefully you are, then... There's something that you can learn that we can learn this morning when we look at this teaching from Jesus on humility. Humility does a few things. The first thing is that it asks a question. One who is truly humble asks this How am I wrong? Humility asks the question How am I wrong? It is very, very difficult to ask this question. It's very difficult to look and be self-aware enough to know what it is that we're really doing that might be wrong. Jesus is clear that God isn't interested in us trying to impress him by following rules because we're never going to follow enough rules to actually have it be impressive. We're not actually going to be able to accomplish righteousness on our own. And so because of that, we ask We ask this question, how is it that I'm wrong? Jesus knows that this is a very hard question to ask the longer that you're a religious person. That's why he's constantly warning his disciples, the more that they're spending time with him, he's constantly warning them to be careful, to not let a certain thing happen to them, that if it happens to them, it will will change everything and not for the better. He gives them one of these warnings in Luke chapter 12. He says, we read this, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The leaven of the Pharisees, which he calls hypocrisy. What does he mean by that? Jesus is saying that this thing, hypocrisy, is like leavening, where you get a little bit of it into a dough, and it makes the whole thing rise and puff up. It mostly is puffing up with air. It makes the thing rise and expand and get bigger. He says this is what hypocrisy does in, in the life of a religious person, is it starts out small, and it grows and grows and grows. And as it gets bigger, Jesus knows that it's going to get harder and harder and harder for this person to ask the question, how am I wrong? Now, it's easy to go, well, we, we aren't supposed to have to ask that question, right? We're not supposed to, like, I mean, isn't our goal to be, I do, I, I, I like, get better. I get better. I, I'm refined by God. I grow in my holiness or sanctification as a Christian. And as a result of that, I don't have to ask this question as much, right? I mean, isn't that what maturity is? Maturity is getting to a point more and more in life where it's like you don't have to ask this question anymore because you're fortunately not doing anything wrong. If you want to know what maturity looks like for a Christian, you look at a guy like Paul who's a pretty mature Christian, and you look at the advice that he gives to Timothy when he's preparing this young pastor for ministry. Here's what Paul says to him. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance… That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's good. I'll say that. I'm fine with that. We can stop there. But Paul goes further. Of whom I am the foremost. This is Paul saying with sincerity to Timothy, listen, as far as I'm concerned, I'm the worst sinner out there. If I've got issues, if I've got things in my life, if I've got to deal with between me and God, what we're, we're going to deal with things is me approaching Him going, man, I have such an awareness of the things within me that don't live up to His holiness because I see these glimpses of His holiness and His glory and His majesty. I see the goodness of God and the greatness of God and the graciousness and the gloriousness of God. And because of those things, man, I, I am aware of the ways that I fall short. In fact, if anything, the longer that I know God, the longer that I try to live for Him, the more it seems that I'm aware of the fact that no matter how hard I try to do good things... The evil things are right there as temptations again and again and again. Boy, it seems like sometimes I'm the worst of all sinners, is how Paul would describe himself to Timothy. And the saying, he says, this is a thing to maybe keep in mind, Timothy. He's saying, kind of passing it on to you, Timothy, that as someone who's going to be a pastor, who's going to go on, that you would be able to see yourself and say, I'm going to be around all these people all the time. I'm going to be around all these people and I'm going to be the one with the information. I'm going to be the one with the learning. I'm going to be the one teaching them. I'm going to be the one leading and shepherding them. Don't let that grow within you like this yeast, this leavening of the Pharisees. Know this, that before God, I am the foremost of all sinners. Humility asks the question, how am I wrong? Now, what isn't the question, how am I wrong, is how can I be better? How can I be better? How can I do better, God? is not the same as how am I wrong. Because how can I be better? How can I do better? Is like, let's just work on being even better than I am right now. I mean, so many people approach God, approach Christ, even come to church looking for ways to just be better versions of who you are now. But this isn't the same as the question that humility forces us to ask, which is, how am I wrong? We ask this question and humility shows us something. Humility gives us the ability to see something that we otherwise would not see, and it's a lot harder to see than you would think. Humility shows who I really am. Humility shows me who I really am. Without humility, I'm incapable of seeing who I really am. Humility is not pretending to be like less or lower. Humility actually leads us to recognize with self-awareness who we really are. Live any amount of time of life on this earth, you come to find how unaware most people are of themselves. How, how difficult it seems to be for people to truly know themselves. A counselor will sit down with a person and will be able to tell within an hour, that first appointment, probably what's going on within that person. But that isn't the challenge. That isn't why they keep coming back. And that's, why counselors are, that's not why counselors are a good thing. Because this person has to see for themselves who they really are. And unfortunately, counselors will tell you that they learn very quickly you can't just point it out in everybody. Go around seeing how that works, seeing how that goes. You'll probably end up walking away going, I don't get why they are that way. I don't get how they can't see the way they are. Humility shows who I really am. It shows us who these men really are. The, the Pharisee, on one hand, we read this, standing by himself, he prays thus. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. This starts out like a thankful prayer, right? This is actually, most scholars would agree that this prayer is like a it's like a play on a psalm. It's like parody on a psalm. It's like the guy's about to say the right thing. God, I thank you so much for, and then you're all ready for it. And he goes, How awesome I am. And you're like, yikes. But this is what he does. God, I'm not like other men. Thank goodness, Lord. God, I know that you're happy that I'm not like all those men because that's those men are terrible. Those men are extortioners. They're unjust. They're adulterers. They break all these laws. God, thank you that I'm not even like this tax collector. He says even this tax collector because the guy's at least there. The tax collector is right there in the same room in the temple praying to God. He sees this man praying to God, beating on his chest, humbly praying to God. And he looks at that man, and even the fact that this guy is talking to God, even the fact that this guy is in the right place where we want people to be, he still looks at him and he goes, God, thank you that I'm even not like that guy. Because, yeah, he may be close, but, I mean, we all know about what he has going on in his life. God, thank you that I'm not like this guy. This prayer to God is about himself. He's thankful for himself. And you might hear this and be like, man, I don't know. I don't know how realistic that would be. Have you ever gotten a Christmas card? And you open it and there's a Christmas letter. And you open the Christmas letter, it's like 15 pages long. and, And you read it and it seems a little bit like this. It seems a little bit like, you know, we're so thankful for all these great things and you walk away feeling like, okay, it's pretty impressive. It's pretty great. You're pretty awesome. I feel pretty horrible about my life, myself, what I went through this year. We sure didn't do a Christmas letter because I didn't want anybody to know what this year was like or whatever, right? God, thank you. Thank you for my family. That's not a bad prayer. Thank you for my family because they are so great that compared to other families, God, they're amazing. God, thank you that my family isn't like all those other families out there. Thank you, God, for that. God, thank you for my marriage. Thank you that the relationship my spouse and I have, that that it's not like all those other marriages out there that give a bad name to marriage. God, thank You for my wisdom. God, I am so thankful that You've given me wisdom, that You've given me the ability to really know and understand the important things in life. God, I'm so grateful for that. God, thank You that my parents took the time to teach me to be disciplined, Thank you, God, for my discipline. Thank you for my hard work. Thank you for my ability to do the right thing, even when it means denying myself and doing the hard thing. Thank you, God, because, man, what a mess this world is, filled with so many people who lack that discipline, who lack that responsibility, didn't have the benefits of being shown that by the wonderful things, life, parents, family that I came from. God, thank you for my testimony I am so thankful for my testimony with all that embarrassing, ugly, terrible stuff so far in the past that it's like the prologue to my story. Or maybe it doesn't have any of that stuff. Thank you for my testimony where absolutely there was not a single example of a time that I needed you. God, thank you for that testimony. God, thank you for the respect that I have amongst people. God, I thank you that that when people look at me, they respect me. God, I know that I know that pleases you. I know that 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 makes you happy. Because you know, I point people to you as much as I can. But God, I thank you that in my job, I thank you that in my church, I thank you that in my community, that I have the reputation that commands respect that people look up to. God, I've worked hard for that reputation. I've cultivated that. I've 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 labored for that. I've sacrificed for that. Thank you, God for that reputation. God, thank you for who I am. I'm so thankful for myself, is this man's prayer. This man lacks self-awareness. Anybody who knew about the Pharisees who was honest, who really saw what they did, knew that these guys selected the things that were easy for them, which was the outward obedience to the law. And they ignored the inward law. They ignored their own hearts. They ignored the actual motivation. And they only ever did anything that other people could see. There was one day of the year that you were required to fast, and it was the Day of Atonement. But those Pharisees, man, they were better. They took it a step further. They fasted two days a week. Not one day a year, two days a week. And never mind the fact that the two days that they fasted happened to be the days of the week when all the people would come in from the countryside and the markets would open up and there would be tons of people crowding around, walking around. Never mind the fact that they put a little bit of white on their face and wear their worst clothes and, you know, because it's important, right? Isn't it important that people see what holiness looks like? Isn't it important that people see what it looks like to to love God enough to be willing to fast and sacrifice for him? They, you were supposed to tithe a portion of, of, of what you had, and, uh, but it also was the kind of thing where you, there wasn't really any way to tithe exactly 10% of every single part in your life. Well, the Pharisees did it. It said that they tithed even a tenth of their herbs. Okay, if you have a garden... Herbs don't really count, right? They don't really count as like what you grew that year. Uh, You might have some great herbs growing, but usually they grow year-round, right? Uh, There's actually the season where the crops come in and they go out, but then there's the rest of the year where maybe you got that mint plant or that basil plant or something like that growing in your backyard, And, and, you know, you just don't really count that, right? No, no, no. These guys, a tenth of everything, a tenth of every little thing, and made sure that everyone knew of how much they gave. This Pharisee was a respectable man. He could stand by himself and praise himself because he did the things that were impressive. But because he lacked humility, he didn't really know who he was. He didn't see who he was, even though many others saw that person themselves. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. A tax collector was a Jewish person who collected taxes for the Roman Empire. Now, the Jews did not want to live under Roman rule. They did not like this. Those were the enemies. Those were the bad guys. And as the Jewish people... Had to pay these taxes i work hard i earn this money and i have to give a portion of it to who i have to give a portion of it to this to this foreign empire that's going to use it to build their false idols and give to caesar who says he's a god i don't like anything about this arrangement whatsoever well who were the people that collected the taxes it was jewish people who sold out who said hey guess what when you go around and you collect taxes from people You can take whatever you want. You are the one that gets to say to that person, here's how much your flock is worth. Here's how much your vineyard is worth. Here's how much you owe based on the number of people in your family or how I judge your tax sort of liability to be. So a tax collector went around collecting tax for the Romans, which you hated to begin with. And on top of that, you knew they were going to take more money from you than they were supposed to because that's how they paid themselves. I'm sure a tax collector said to themselves, well, hey, this isn't a very popular job. I'm losing friends over this. This isn't easy for me to do this. So, you know, it makes sense that I'm going to, you know, have to, you know, line the pockets a little bit and may as well at least be successful while I do this very difficult public service that I'm doing. So for a tax collector, a Jewish person, even if, you were to get past the shame of what you did. Even if you were to decide, I want to be a person who absolutely lives for God with integrity. I'm not gonna skim any money off the top. I'm not gonna take any extra that I do. I'm gonna show people with the way that I am am disciplined and the way that I am holy, that they uh, they can respect me and they won't hate me or loathe me. Every single day that you get up and you go to work, you are given an opportunity with every interaction, with every person to take more and have no one know. Well, they'll know, but no one will stop you or to take the right amount. Could you imagine if every day you had opportunity to take the money that you wanted to take, to have more abundance and to know that you wouldn't be penalized for it, to know that you could justify it, to know that you can make reasons for why that's a good thing to do. No matter how devout a tax collector would have been, there is no doubt that this person would be coming before God saying, I blew it. I took too much this time. And in reality, most tax collectors didn't feel a ton of shame for what it was they were doing. In fact, they considered in their own way and in the eyes of the Roman Empire, it a respectable profession. I mean... You look at both of these guys and you see two successful people. One is successful with money, but a a sort of a compromised reputation. The other one has an incredibly impressive reputation and denies themselves things like money. Both men are doing well, but the man who beats his chest and comes before God with humility knows himself. He knows who he really is. He knows where he really stands. Humility asks this question, it shows us who we really are, and then it brings us something, and it's what we read about here. It brings us justification. There is no way that we could ever be really justified before God if we don't come before Him in humility. There's no way. Humility brings justification. Can you imagine what that does to a person? To walk away from God every time thinking they're justified and not being justified how distorted his thinking is going to be, how arrogant and prideful he's going to be, how hard it's going to be for him to actually come to God with humility and be justified. But the humble man walks away. He goes home justified. As hard and painful as that situation was, as shameful as it was to get on his knees and beat his chest and and, and deal with the shame that came with knowing what he had done, to humbly come before God and to say, have mercy on me, to have to depend on the mercy of God himself, as hard as that is, that man walks away justified. Why? Because when we come to God in humility, he responds with love, with grace, and with mercy. He responds with these things in abundance. There is no shortage of those things from God. But if we are to experience those things, it won't be because of how impressive our actions were and the things that we did. It will be because we came before him in humility. It is at this point that we come to a dilemma. We come to a problem. And the problem is this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This still doesn't make a lot of sense. It still asks the question, so as I'm raising children right now, am I supposed to want my children to be groveling? humbled tax collectors? Am I supposed to want for the people in my life, for myself? Is that supposed to be my goal in life, that I be a person who is asking the question, how am I wrong? How could I ever possibly build anything on that? How could I ever possibly have even even a, a remotely decent reputation in this world? How could I possibly gain anything in the eyes of anyone if I'm constantly being humbled and humiliating myself, How on earth does that make sense? Because you have to understand that when Jesus says this to people, this is their thought. Their thought is, okay, yeah, but nobody can really be humble in this way and actually have life make any sense. The world would not keep turning. Things would not keep happening. We would not go on. Society would not exist if everyone was just living this way and being given this kind of grace. And this doesn't make sense unless you look at it in light of God's glory. We've been talking about God being glorious, that God's glory is a visible thing, that glory itself is a visible thing. And what the Bible tells us is that if God is glorious, I can be humble. You see, I'm going to either spend my life pursuing my glory or God's. I'm going to spend my life pursuing and building up my reputation or God's reputation. And if I am concerned with building up my reputation in any way, then I will lose the ability to be humble. I cannot ask, what am I doing wrong? Where am I wrong? I cannot ask that question because what it will cost me to ask that question and get the answer sometimes will hurt my reputation. It will hurt my standing before other people. It will hurt my success in this world at times. Which is why the only way that I can be humble is if God Himself is as glorious as He says He is. Why? Because my life is for His glory, not my own. I live this life in pursuit of the glory of God. People are supposed to look at me and look at my life, and instead of saying, man, that person is so great, I want their God because he gave them the ability to do it on their own. That person is to look at us and say, their God must be glorious. Their God must be as gracious as they say. What Paul actually says to Timothy in full is this when he's giving him advice. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But... I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It would be very bad news if Paul had to stop with, I'm the foremost sinner, see you, good night everybody, and we're done. That's a real downer. There's no hope in that. There's a reason that most people don't Exhibit this kind of humility and experience repentance is because there's no hope on the other side of it in their mind. But Paul says the good news is this I received mercy from God. And why did he give me mercy? It still wasn't because of how great I am. He gave me mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God wants to use our lives as like walking advertisements for His mercy and His glory and His patience for eternal life. People are to look at us and not say, how impressive is that person? They're to look at us and say, how big is that person's God? This means that church is to be a place that is not about the best people. With the best behavior and the best lifestyles. Church is to be a place that is about humility, repentance, and then seeing God empower the things that we do. I watched a documentary this week. A lot of people probably watched it because it came out and it was about Bob Ross. There's a Bob Ross documentary on Netflix. And Bob Ross, The Joy of Painting, he's amazing blows your mind. If you haven't watched him in a while, turn on a Bob Ross, and it'll blow your mind again. And it was this whole documentary on how uh, sort of popular and famous Bob Ross became. But the thing about him that's so incredible is that he isn't famous for being a great painter. He isn't famous for the quality of his artwork. He's famous for giving so many people the ability to feel like they know how to paint. That's it. That was the guy's passion, I watched this clip of him on Live with Regis and Kathy Lee, and uh, it was amazing. It was like the 90s in all their glory, the early 90s. And it was him on Regis and Kathy Lee teaching Regis and Kathy Lee how to paint. And there's this point like 15 minutes in where Regis goes like, you know, in his Regis voice, he goes, I'm painting! I'm painting! You got me painting! Or something like that. And he's like amazed. He's shocked. He's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe this is happening. This is why everybody loved this guy. This is why it was like kind of a revolutionary thing. What it was that he did was he found joy in... Helping other people be able to do this wonderful thing. We are to find joy in seeing people come to live in light of God's grace and mercy. We are to ourselves be examples of that happening in our own life. The church is to be a place where this starts. A place where, with all the craziness of life and the world around us, Because the world is nuts and life is nuts and things are really hard right now. That in the midst of all of that, that the answer is not, that I develop a reputation that is so impressive that people say, okay, fine, you win. Everyone in the world should be like you. But it is that we be the people who lead the way in doing the very thing that we want to see everyone else do. One of my favorite books that I've read to my kids before... We read it years ago, and I just think it's one of the greatest books ever. Yes, I'm going to end with a kid's book. It's this book. It's called Caps for Sale. All right, Caps for Sale is such an amazing book. If you haven't read this book, seriously, buy this book. I'll let you borrow it, okay, and you can read it. And this, is like, this is like unbelievable. In, uh, in this book, Caps for Sale, it's about a guy who is, you're never going to guess, selling caps. He has a very unique way of selling caps. He goes around with all of them stacked up on his head in one big pile. And he walks around with all these caps on his head and he sells caps, okay? Pretty easy to to see how this, this looks here. So one day he's out selling caps, walking around, and he gets tired and takes a nap under a tree. And when he wakes up, he finds only one hat on his head. All the rest have been grabbed by a bunch of monkeys because it turns out that he took a nap under a tree full of monkeys. Now, monkeys are infuriating. Uh, everything they do seems to be infuriating, especially in this story. And this man absolutely loses his mind over this. He cannot, he cannot deal with what has happened. They've taken all of his hats. This is his livelihood. This is how he gets anything uh, that he needs. He gets so angry that he shouts and he shakes his his fist at the monkeys and he says, give me back my hat. And then this is so amazing to think about it, this, this playing out. They shake their fist right at him and they like mock him. Like in their like monkey voice, give me back my hat. Then he gets so angry, he shakes both fists at them. You're never going to guess what they do. They shake both fists back at him. He then stomps his foot, it says, and he yells, give me back my hat. I want my hat back. And then it says they stomp their foot. And then it says he stomps both feet and it says this tree full of monkeys is just up there stomping their feet, mocking this guy, copying everything he does. And then the guy finally gets so angry, gets so furious, he just takes his hat off and he throws it down on the ground. And you'll never guess what happens. They throw the hats down. I read this story for the first time, and it blew my mind. And I know you're thinking you have a very simple mind, if this blew your mind. And yes, I do, I guess. It blew my mind, and I thought, this is the problem, is that it is absolutely true that I, I, I said in the first service, like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do a youth ministry ending to this sermon, okay? What are the monkeys in your life, Right? What are the monkeys in your life? Okay, there. That's my youth ministry thing. But it is true that like, we find ourselves surrounded by things in this world, just going like, how on the earth am I supposed to get through this? How am I supposed to make any sense of this? How are things ever going to get any better? Because they're not. They're only getting worse and worse and worse. Jesus' advice to his disciples, to those that would follow him, is very simple. His advice to them is that they would start by doing it themselves. You think about the people that are ruining your life right now. You think about the person in your life that is giving you a difficult time. You think about this feeling that you have opposition in this world because we all feel this way, especially right now. And you think about how much you just wish that that person or those people or that group or whatever it is would just stop and ask the question, God, How am I wrong right now? I mean, you think about any conflict you have in your life right now. If the other person were to just ask the question, God, how am I wrong right now? I mean, how often do we talk to people and they say, you know, or or you talk to someone and you say, I'm going to go pray about it. say, I'm going to go pray about it. And and yet you kind of know, like, I'm not really sure maybe how much good that's going to do. Because how often do we ask this question? Well, humility is us asking that question first. Humility is us asking that question each time that we talk to God, saying, God, how am I wrong? And in asking that, hearing from God, seeing who we really are, and walking away truly justified. This would, like, change the world if people did this we're called to be a place where it's safe to live this way. The church is called to be a place where it is safe to say these things, to acknowledge these things. That instead of building up reputations and trying to be impressive, that we are people who can get on our knees, we can confess things to God, and we can be truly justified. Let's pray. Father, as we... Reflect on who you are, on your word, on the truth of this passage, God. When we talk about how glorious you really are, we talk about something that is visible. And Lord, the challenge for us is we want people to see us. We want our glory to be visible. Even the most shy and self-effacing of us do want to know That our reputation in this world is good. Want to know that others would look at the lives that we have and the things the way things that we do when we live, and that they would say, "Great job." But Father, we are people who we see here from the words of Jesus Himself that what it means to really be the right kind of person, what it means to be the good person, is to be the person who beats our chest. And who asked the question, God, can you have mercy on me, a sinner? God, we celebrate the fact that you are so good that we know that you respond with grace and with love, which is why it's okay for us to do this, Lord. As we worship you in this time, as we pray to you in this time, would you overwhelm us with a sense of your love for us, your acceptance of us, your grace for us, and would we walk away justified, and filled, not with a sense of our own impressiveness and importance, but filled with confidence in who you are, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.